My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversation. Tonight is the second in our series about sibling relationships. We're going to be talking about sibling ambivalence. I'm going to be talking with Lori Kramer, a clinical psychologist and professor of applied family studies in the Department of Human and Community Development at the University of Illinois. She's also the Associate Dean for Academic Programs in their College of Agricultural, Consumer, and Environmental Sciences. Dr. Kramer was the founding director of the Family Resiliency Center at the University of Illinois, which is aimed at enhancing the well-being of children, youth, and families through multidisciplinary research, education, and outreach. Welcome to Safe Space, Lori. Thank you so much for inviting me. So what do you mean by sibling ambivalence? We used to always call it rivalry. Tell me what that means. Well, you know, historically, we have thought about siblings as always having some form of rivalry, um, always looking for some of the negativity or jealousy between siblings. But when you really take a close look at what siblings do when they're together, you can see some pretty rapid changes between actually some pretty positive things that siblings might do together, like play a game or, you know, enjoy a bath together if they're really little kids. Uh, And that can change very, very quickly to some negative things like conflict or anger, frustration, you name it. Um, So when you really look at all these sorts of behaviors that you see between children, you see that they're really mixtures um, or sometimes very rapid fluctuations of very positive and sometimes very negative things. So ambivalence may be a more accurate descriptor of what at least children's sibling relationships often look like. So I'd like to talk about both sides of it. I'd like to talk about the conflict side as well as the really more connected side. In fact, that's where I want to spend most of our time. But I was really struck in reading some of your work that you say uh, siblings on average have about seven and a half disputes per hour. We clocked it. (laughs) (laughs) That got my attention. Yeah, we watch them and we observe them and we see what, what happens. And when you're looking at young children... I think we were looking at four to four to eight-year-olds in that study. Um, it is pretty amazing how often they engage in some sort of, of dispute. So these and other researchers have found similar rates. So with young children, this is truly a frequent occurrence. So you can see why people can really emphasize the conflict side of it. <laughs> they come by this perception <laughs> honestly. <laughs> it does seem that way. So Go ahead. Yeah. We have some research that actually shows that when you ask parents directly about what concerns them about their children's relationship, they will tell you that they fight too much. There's too much conflict. But we also looked at this from another perspective. We looked at, um, used a questionnaire that asked parents to describe to us what a good sibling relationship looks like. And we looked at things like conflict and positivity and things like that. Then we asked them uh, to rate their own children's relationship on those same dimensions. And we were really astounded to see that the largest difference between what parents were seeing in their children's relationship and what they really hoped to see or what they considered the marker of a good relationship wasn't too much conflict. It was actually not enough warmth and involvement connection between their children. 
So let's talk about that side of the ambivalence, because that seems to me to be the real focus of your work, and it really interested me. What I have learned from you is that actually supporting and fostering those warm, connected experiences is even more important than trying to minimize the conflict. And I wondered if you could tell me more about why that's true. I think that is a key factor. And if you think about it, it makes sense. What do parents do when kids are fighting? Um, A lot of times they may yell at them or tell them to stop fighting. A lot of times they will separate their children. They'll send them to different rooms in the house or distract them. Um, But whatever's working to stop the conflict may be successful in getting kids to fight less at that moment, but it's not helping the kids develop a stronger, more positive relationship to do that. In fact, the research shows that truly the only way to do that is to teach children how exactly to interact more positively with one another. It doesn't seem to be something that we all enter this world knowing exactly how to do, but it is teachable. So, and I understand you have designed a program called Fun with Sisters and Brothers, and then for older kids, More Fun with Sisters and Brothers, that <laughs> aims to do just that. Will you tell me a little bit about that program? We, um, I have done a lot of research over the last 20-plus years um, that's really been aiming at what are those factors that best predict good sibling relationships over time. And we were able to identify a few things that really stood out as markers of good sibling relationships. These were things like being able to, you know, spend time with one another and have conversation or connected play with one another, or being able to take each other's perspective, or being able to manage some of the unpleasant and challenging emotions that come up in the course of sibling interaction and learning how to um, manage conflicts that come up. So what we've done is use the results of that research to actually teach young children how to do those social and emotional competencies that turn out to be very, very important for good sibling relationships. We teach children these skills, and then we use research to evaluate how well that's working, and that helps us to develop a richer and more accurate understanding of what's truly important in shaping positive sibling relationships. So I'd like to talk about some of those skills because from my perspective as an adult psychiatrist working with adults, some of the things you just said are really very challenging for grown-ups. Taking well, someone else's perspective. Well, I truly believe that if you could teach some of these skills to adults, then the world would be a better place. Yeah, so I want to I want to actually get into the nitty-gritty of it cuz I it feels really important what you're saying. And um maybe let's take one about taking each other's perspective. So the capacity presumably for empathy is what you're saying or imagining Absolutely. the world through someone else's eyes. Absolutely. And how do you As teach you a said, young child how to do that? 
Yeah, well, you know, with adults, that's a tough thing to do. You often have to remind people that others in the room, like their marital partner, uh, they have a different opinion, a different idea about things, and that it's just as valid as your own personal idea and opinion. See, that's truly the model that we use in working with young children. Our program begins, um, well, works with children as young as four years of age, Um, And what we do is help kids through stories, through some games, different exercises to understand that they and their siblings are not just carbon copies of one another, um, but that each individual has their own set of unique ideas, opinions, preferences, desires, many things like that, and that each person's perspective is just as important and valid as the other. One of the things that we like to do in our More Fun with Sisters and Brothers program is play a game that um, many of your older listeners might recall as, uh, you know, our version of the newlywed game. Okay. <laughs> kind of asking a series of questions, separating the older and younger siblings into different groups, and asking questions like, what's your... What's your brother, what's your sister's favorite color? What's their favorite ice cream? What do they want to be when they grow up? Questions like that. And, you know, for some siblings, they know right offhand what those things are. And they can understand that, you know, even though their their brother may want to be a dentist, of all things, um, they personally don't have any interest in that. They want to be a firefighter. Um, and then bring the kids back together and see how well they have um, anticipated each other's answers. That's just a simple example of how you can help kids understand the simple point that everybody's unique, has their own ideas, and everybody has an equally valid um, perspective on the world. We teach kids in um, the course of their interactions with siblings uh, to use that skill to not just assume that they know Um, what their sibling's point of view or preference is going to be, but to use some scripted language that we help the children learn to really um, ask each other about those sorts of things and to accept the fact that um, each person may have a unique viewpoint in this case. They can compare that. They can talk about it. It helps provide a model for how to explore differences and similarities between themselves and their siblings. And then is the idea that in a more charged situation, like say they both want a turn with a with a favored toy and it's getting intense, and mm-hmm. is the idea that then that they would be able to kind of call on that knowing and remember, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this person's Wanting to play is just as valid as my wanting to play? Absolutely. And because we have practiced it so much and because we train parents to support um, the steps that we teach children to use and the language that they can use to describe these things and to communicate with one another, it's much easier for them in in the heat of an argument to draw upon those skills. One of the most important things that we found um, in teaching children these social and emotional competencies is to teach young children self-control. 
And, you know, we're talking about young young children here. Right. Um, and so our, our aspirations are pretty <laughs> modest. And we basically help children when they're in a situation that might lead to conflict or hard, hard feelings um, to just simply stop what they're doing, to think uh, about what they want to have happen, what their goal is at that moment, and then to talk, to express to one another what is going on, what their goal is, or what they need to learn from the other. That self-control paradigm, which children are able to learn very, very quickly, even when they're four years old, um, is something that can help them de-escalate conflicts with a sibling or anyone else for that matter. How striking, because I can imagine some parents thinking that a four-year-old would not be able to practice that very easily. But your experience is that it really, they get it, even at four. Well, in fact, most of our children learn it within one session. It's really astounding. And um, over time, all parents really need to do is prompt or coach um, that type of self-control paradigm and, and lead kids through this whole process of learning how to talk to each other about what's happening at that moment. Laura, are you trying to get this curriculum passed in every preschool in the country? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you, um, might, you might put us adult clinicians out of business. <laughs> no, I, I need you guys to help implement this across the country. <laughs> um, I know another part of it um, that also really interested me that you've written about is teaching the kids not to assume the worst intention in their sibling. Yeah. Yes. And I'd love to hear more about that because that is so <laughs> at the root of adult conflicts when we assume that that person meant to hurt us, did it on purpose, knew right. that would get me, and did it anyway. You know, I hear that kind of thing all the time. So I'd love to hear what you do for that. Yes, and, and you know, and as you're describing it, you know, it's really the case with adults and with children, too, that type of processing, cognitive processing, is happening extremely quickly. Um, it doesn't take very much for siblings to interpret that nasty glance in the back seat of the car <laughs> or, um, you know, even a gesture uh, for another child to interpret that behavior very negatively and to quickly act upon that interpretation of their behavior in ways that could lead to conflict or retaliation or hurt feelings. So what we do try to do in the program is help children to develop what I would call more benign attributions. When you have a choice of how to interpret another person's behavior, choose the uh, more benign or positive interpretation. Don't just jump to the conclusion that someone did something in order to hurt you or to make your life more difficult or unpleasant. And um, again, that self-control paradigm that we're teaching children plays a very important role in this process. Um, One of the most important things I think parents and teachers can do is to help children avoid 
reacting impulsively, but to be much more reflective about what is going on in terms of interpreting the situation and in terms of deciding how to respond to that. So we, again, would use that stop, think, and talk paradigm to help children inhibit uh, automatic and negative responding to help them think through what's going on. This ties in very beautifully to the perspective-taking skill that we're teaching in that we're asking children, you know, what's going on? What do you think is happening? How can you find out what your goal is? How can you find out what your sibling's goal is in that case, what their sibling was intending to do? And we teach them to actually ask their sibling what's going on or what what are they thinking at that moment? Why did you give me that look? And hopefully ask that question in a neutral tone of voice that wouldn't necessarily just lead the sibling to react negatively, but, um, but to really be thoughtful about um, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and what they might have been communicating non-verbally to their sibling that might have been ambiguous or confusing to their sibling. So, you know, you can imagine two teenage siblings sitting at the dinner table, one walks to the table and sees the, uh, you know, his brother or sister sitting there looking really sullen and unhappy, he could automatically assume that the sibling is mad at them, upset with them. Um, And instead of retaliating, hopefully they could use uh, some of the language that we would be teaching them to just, you know, remark, you know, observe what they're seeing. When I walked in here, you looked really upset. Um, I'm wondering if you are mad at me. You know, offering the sibling a chance to explain their behavior. And we know from working with children and we know from adults, offering an explanation some reason for their behavior is often a very effective way to um, de-escalate or diffuse a conflict. For young children, the reason doesn't even have to make sense. It's just going through the process of trying to um, explain, offer a reason for some behavior that might just seem to be either negative or just confusing to someone. And do you think that teaching young kids this process of stopping and thinking kind of ingraining that as a almost a habit. Do you think that that will will last and sort of support them to do this through the rest of their life? Is that your hope? We do know that it does become ingrained and it does become a habit. And I've certainly talked with parents who've had their children through the More Fun with Sisters and Brothers program years ago, and they'll tell me, oh, they still do that, stop, think, and talk. Um, you know, kind of amazed that um, that language and the routine, the ritual of it has, has in fact remained um, as part of their sibling relationship over time. Um, we've seen young children uh, realize that this is a skill that others could benefit from. Yeah. So I've gotten calls from, we have a child development laboratory on our campus, a preschool, and I've had preschool teachers call me and say, oh, you know, we had a, a, one of our children in our class was trying to do stop, think, and talk with the other kids in the class. <laughs> they didn't know what they were talking about, but I just wanted you to know that they thought that that was, um, you know, very useful 
That's and, wonderful. And would work in that skill. We've also had some parents come in and tell us that their children asked them, the parents, to use stop, think, and talk when it looked like the parents were having an argument. So kids get it. <laughs> I guess they do. And, you know, I, I think uh, being around other parents, you hear so much when, you, when siblings start to get into it. Often the parents will actually try to stay out of it and say, no, no, you know, work it out yourselves. And I'm, I'm curious, is that what you would advise parents to do? Or do you think there's a role for them to actually foster these, the, use, the use of these kinds of skills without Absolutely. getting in there and solving it? Yes, and in fact, this is a very critical area. We've actually done some research. Um, we've wired up children with wireless microphones, let them go roam their own houses, ask parents to listen to what was going on with their children on kind of a speaker system, and we asked them to respond to their kids as they normally would. And we looked at ha- what happened when kids got into a conflict, how parents behaved, whether they let them just try to work it out themselves, whether they just ignored it, uh, or whether they did intervene and try to use some um, conflict management strategies to help the kids resolve the conflict. And what we learned was very, very important. We saw that for children whose parents just let them work it out on their own, and these were kids in the about the 4 to 10 year age range, those kids continued to have conflict. It didn't go away. It didn't get resolved on its own. And for children whose parents did intervene and offer some support and scaffolding as they were trying to solve the, the problem they were facing, um, those children tended to have much more positive interactions with one another following uh, the conflict. Mm-hmm. We cannot assume that young children have the social and emotional competencies that are necessary for resolving conflicts on their own. Um, especially children under the age of eight, our research suggests that chances are they don't have these skills on their own and they might truly need either instruction like going through a program like More Fun with Sisters and Brothers or perhaps some some help from parents uh, to help them manage that. It's so striking because I think um, so often parents just try to solve the conflict or take away the the offending toy or separate people because they just want the conflict to go away. But what I hear you saying is that you want the parent to get involved, not to solve it themselves, but to sort of facilitate the process among the kids figuring out how to yes, do that. Yes, we need parents um, to help children learn how to, to develop those conflict management skills that are going to be able to ultimately allow them to settle things on their own. So I want to ask you a a little bit more about, you know, how to foster the warmth and connection between kids. It seems to be the the powerful variable. And uh, one of the things I read is that the, the, the nature of a relationship between two siblings is often very stable over time, that how it is early is sort of how it how it stays. And I'm curious, um, do your interventions work with two siblings that just, almost like temperamentally, just don't like each other? How, how, do, you, <laughs> how do you work with that? Because that's so often what people say is, you know, it, it just, it just this person just irritates me. They've always irritated me. I just didn't like them. Mm-hmm. And 
How do you work with that? Well, uh, I must say that we have not run into that as much as you might think. Hmm. Um, that for the most part, yes, siblings irritate each other all the time, <laughs> um, but they also can usually identify some things that they truly admire about their siblings. Um, and that's one of the first things that we do in More Fun with Sisters and Brothers is to ask each child to introduce their sibling and to um, tell us something that they truly admire or like about their sibling. And I've I've never heard a child not be able to come up with something. Um, so there's always something to draw on. And, and I think what we need to do as parents, as educators, as practitioners is to help support that. Um, sibling relationships, even good sibling relationships, will always contain some degree of conflict, some degree of negativity, irritation, those things are going to be there. But I think our challenge is to make whatever is positive in this relationship uh, happen more often and to help children identify and appreciate what is positive in this relationship. might not be everything from soup to nuts, but there's probably something that they can realize about it, even the fact that they share the same parents and have to deal with some of the, the craziness and unreasonableness that many parents inflict on their children. Having that shared history um, and knowing each other so well um, is a huge strength and a huge connection between young people. We don't always do enough in our very hurried lives to help help children appreciate that. I was really struck by the results of the Valiant study among Harvard alumni about the power of a supportive sibling relationship. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. Well, they you know, followed uh, very successful Harvard graduates over the course of their lives. And one of the most important predictors of happiness, success, um, a good life later, I think it was age 65, was uh, reporting having a very powerful and, and um, positive relationship with a sibling earlier in life. And I think that was age 18 was what they were asking about. Um, we know that these are very important relationships for individuals. Having a positive relationship with a sibling can be a very important critical predictor of other very good outcomes for individuals, for individuals in relationships to other people, and for families. Um, so I think supporting uh, the positivity in these relationships is really very, very important and will offer a lot to uh, many families and probably society as a whole. So, Lori, we are going to have to end in a minute, but I wanted to ask you, you know, you've devoted your life to this issue. You've been working on it, as you said, for more than 20 years. You've been writing about it, thinking about it, creating programs for kids. And I'm curious if you'd tell me a little bit about how you knew yourself that this was so important. Well, I think that it is uh, relationships that people have, I think, are very critical and formative. And uh, relationships that even young children have early in their lives can also play a very supportive and formative role for them as well. That was something that I thought was really important and needed to be studied uh, in more depth. Um, personally, I grew up with a sister 
I was the oldest child. Um, we had a wonderful relationship, and I often found it puzzling that others didn't as well. So this became an important uh, area of study, and I was really gratified when I read exciting work that others were doing in this area. I knew that this was an area that I wanted to get more deeply involved in and try to find some research evidence-based approaches to help families address this very important issue. And and what I sense from you is that your work mostly focuses not on, you know, the role of the parents and favoritism and uh, the parental-child relationship, but really on the sibling-to-sibling relationship. Well, I do study uh, parent-child interactions and parental differential treatment as it relates to uh, siblings, but I, I would say that I am more interested in helping children themselves establish the social and emotional competencies that will serve them well, not only in their relationships within their family, but beyond the family as well. Lori Kramer, it seems to me that you're doing exactly that. I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. Thank you so much. I've been talking to Lori Kramer, who is the founder and director of the More Fun with Sisters and Brothers program. She is a professor of applied family studies at the Department of Community and Human and Community Development at the University of Illinois. My thanks tonight to Ken Capron for mixing the sound, Maurice Leonard for the music, Neil McKenty for being my consultant. If you'd like to listen to this interview in its entirety or send it to a friend of yours who's a parent of more than one child, please go to the website at www.safespaceradio.com. You can subscribe there to get a weekly announcement about the show for that week. You can also download the podcast from the iTunes store if you want to listen to it on your phone, and you can like us on Facebook. Coming up next is Watchdog with Ken.